welcome to episode two of But I Digress. Just like last time, I'm your solo host, Warren, affectionately known as Chris by my close family and friends. And I just would like to start off by saying I'm super excited about the reception for episode one and really happy to be back week two, just like we promised. So just like last week, we're going to start with a little bit of history. Back in 1886, Henry Ford test drove what he called the quadricycle, the first automobile he ever designed and drove. Obviously, Henry Ford, father of the modern automobile, changed the world with his invention of the car. And so it's pretty interesting to know that about 140 years ago, we had the first test drive of what was then called the quadricycle. Obviously, a take on a bicycle later leading to modern-day cars, motorcycles, and now electric cars. In 1919, Congress passed the 19th Amendment, giving women the right to vote. Uh, This is also known as women's suffrage. And today, in 1919, huge day in history for this country, allowing women the right to vote. In 1940, a little bit of sports, the first night games in the Major League Baseball were played. Big deal because we now know that primetime sports is a huge money maker for our professional sports leagues. And primetime uh, during the week is at night because that is obviously when everybody's available to watch. We actually had two games. We had the Dodgers best the Cardinals 10 to 1, and the Pirates beat the Braves 14 to 2. Neither of those games close, but launching the way that we watch sports today. Little more sports. In 1974, the NFL granted a franchise to Seattle, now known as the Seattle Seahawks. Seattle Seahawks have won a Super Bowl and have been a perennial contender for about the past 10 years now. Uh, About since the time they drafted Russell Wilson and even a little bit before that, they were able to make our Super Bowl, although they lost. So one of our current better franchises founded on this day in 1974. And just before that, in 1972, we had Angela Davis political activist found not guilty. Uh, For those of you who don't know, there were some guns used in an attack. The guns were owned by Angela Davis. She proclaimed her innocence, and a jury, full of white people actually, decided that her ownership of the guns was not enough to tie her to the crime, and she was found not guilty in connection with those crimes. Uh, And that topic, actually, uh, black people or African Americans, and actually one Hispanic, Uh, in the law will come up later in the podcast. But before we get to that, we have a few other things to cover. Uh, We're going to talk about lying in sports, which is fairly common, uh, but I've got two pretty unique stories. Uh, We're going to do the Women's World Cup preview as that starts this week. Talk about the historic script spelling bee that happened this past week and talk about the new Netflix documentary, When They See Us. So let's go ahead and get started. Before we talk about the first lying story, I just want to preface this by saying lying in sports is very, very common. Technically, when a player guarantees a win and his team doesn't win, he lies. We have plenty of players and coaches who are asked about making transitions, whether it be to different teams or college coaches going to the NFL or the NBA. And a lot of times they say, I'm happy where I am. I'm not going anywhere. And then two weeks later, that player is on a different team or that coach has moved. So it's really common for us to see lying in sports. And some people might say, well, they were telling the truth at the time and that's how they felt at that moment. But a lot of us know that sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes those people, when they say 
yeah, I'm not going to the NBA, I'm not going to the NFL. They've already thought about it, and they've made up their mind, and they're just saying what they're quote-unquote supposed to say. So these two stories are actually a little more interesting than our common sports lives. The first one uh, has to do with the Cleveland Browns, which previously, up to this year, well, really up to last year, had been the laughing stock of all sports. Uh, they posted an 0-16 record recently. They went a combined 1-31 over the course of two seasons. Uh, famously, since 1999, they've had more quarterbacks than any team in the NFL, going through a lot of things. But they've been on the uptick. They actually made a good number one draft pick and drafted their franchise quarterback. They made some free agent signings, both last year and this year. So the team is definitely looking up. So the Browns, where used to be a place where you didn't want to be caught dead, is now a team that you want to go to, so much so that people are lying for that opportunity. Damon Sheehy Giuseppe lied his way into a workout session. So the background of the story is currently the NFL is in what is called mini camp and training camp. And these are times where players who may not necessarily be on the team have time to practice and an opportunity to try to impress the scouts and the coaches to try to make the team. So currently, you're allowed about 90 players at your practices, and eventually before the season starts, you'll have to cut that down to 53. So while there are more players than normal who are playing for NFL teams at the moment, uh, it's still not that easy to get one of those spots. So Mr. Giuseppe lived in Arizona, and somehow through the grapevine, heard about a workout in Florida. Now, his journey up to this point had been really interesting. Uh, he, according to him, attended Phoenix College in Arizona and didn't receive a scholarship. And in 2016, he tried to transfer and had no interest. It was at this time that he attended multiple CFL, which is the Canadian Football League, and Arena League, which is kind of like a minor league for the NFL. Uh, he attended workouts for both of those leagues and still nobody had invited him for a mini camp or to make the team. So again, he heard about a workout in Florida, more specifically in Miami, and he kind of scrounged together his money and got to that workout. The problem is these workouts are generally invite only. So I, with a quick Google search, he was able to figure out who the vice president of player personnel was, was for the Cleveland Browns. So Sheehy Giuseppe shows up to Miami, heads to the workout, and he was met with some confusion um, from the people running the workout, but he was prepared for that. So I have from an article a clip of what he said. So he walks up and he goes, who, somebody goes, who are you? And he goes, I'm Damon Sheehy Giuseppe. I'm here for the tryout. The next question was, do you know Alonzo? His answer very confidently, yeah, I know Alonzo. Alonzo being Alonzo Highsmith, the vice president of player personnel for the Cleveland Browns. Uh, it was next stated in the article that the confidence paid off and they got they let him into the workout. He had wasn't able to work out yet, but they let him in and he immediately saw Alonzo Highsmith ran up and introduced himself before anybody could say anything. So at this point, he now has the opportunity to participate in the workout, which could potentially lead to a tryout, which could potentially lead to him getting a place on the 90 man roster. So we still got a lot of steps to go, but he's in the door. What ends up happening is he goes to this workout and impresses a bunch of people, runs a 4.38 40-yard dash in the combine. Um, just to provide a bit of context, last year's 
uh, offensive rookie of the or the best offensive running back rather in the NFL. Saquon Barkley ran a 4.41 in his 40. Um, and then he also impressed on special teams as well and actually got invited to a Browns workout. Now, the interesting part about getting invited to the Browns workout is it was not that same day, and he had spent pretty much all of the money that he had getting to Miami. So he slept in his car, finished the workout, and then got offered a spot on the 90-man roster of the Cleveland Browns. At that point, you sign a contract, get a bit of a signing bonus, have some money, and he flies out to minicamp. So in this case, lying although not encouraged, was the only way that he was able to get this opportunity, and he then took advantage of it. And now it is said that he has an outside shot of making the team, uh, but because of his elite speed, if he can impress on special teams, there's a really good chance that he will make the 53-man roster if he impresses on special teams. Either way, still a really cool story about somebody really wanting something, going after it, and then actually getting the opportunity and taking advantage of it. This next story is not so heartwarming. We're going to talk about the Los Angeles Lakers. Those of you who don't watch sports probably still have even have at least heard the word or the name Los Angeles Lakers. They go back to Jerry West, who is the actual logo of the NBA. We had the Showtime Lakers with Magic and Kareem and a bunch of other Hall of Famers, and then you had the Shaq and Kobe Lakers, and then the post-Shaq still with Kobe Lakers. And since Kobe retired, the Lakers have kind of been in a flux. They haven't really been able to find a superstar. They've shuffled through coaches. They haven't really had winning seasons. It's been pretty terrible for them. So things are actually not really getting better. A couple years ago, they convinced Magic Johnson to be the president of basketball operations, and that didn't go so well. At that same time, they also hired a new GM, Rob Palenka. Rob Palenka was formerly the agent of Kobe Bryant. Kobe Bryant being the most recent Mr. Laker, for lack of a better term. Um, after Kobe's retirement, Rob Palenka, because he had been around the team for so long and had represented uh, a lot of high-profile players, including James Harden and Kevin Durant, it seemed like an obvious choice to do something like become the general manager. What's interesting, however is there's been this huge fallout with Magic Johnson, who suddenly quit his job as president of basketball operations for the Lakers and then started throwing people and the entire Lakers franchise under the bus. So Rob Palenka's kind of been in defense mode lately and may have gone just a little bit too far. So just for a bit of context on Palenka, he, like I said, he was Kobe's agent uh, for his entire playing career. He also earned a BA in business and a JD from Michigan. So by all intents and purposes, seems like a pretty book smart guy, at least we would think. And he recently became the Lakers GM. It was in 2017. So I'm just going to read a clip of a story that Rob Palenka told, and then we'll kind of dig into it. So Rob says, there was one time when Kobe, who I worked with for 18 years, was going back to play in Madison Square Garden, and he had just seen The Dark Knight. Obviously, you guys saw that movie, and he's like, hey, hook me up with dinner with Heath Ledger because he got so locked into that role. I want to know how he mentally went there. So he had dinner with Heath, and he talked about how he locks in for a role. And Kobe used some of that in his game against the Knicks. Now, just a little bit of context before we really dive into what happened. There was really no need for Rob Palenka to say 
Kobe, who he worked with for 18 years, because he was doing an interview for, I believe it was a sports website. So obviously that sports website knows who Rob Palenka is, and we all know that he was Kobe's agent for 18 years. Secondly, Madison Square Garden is the home of the New York Knicks. Uh, It's what often referred to as the mecca of basketball. It is one of the most famous sports arenas in the country, blah, 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 blah. Kind of irrelevant, but just a little context for some people who may not have known that. And The Dark Knight is referring to the second movie um, in the Batman, the most recent Batman trilogy, directed by Christopher Nolan, starring Christian Bale. So those of you who've seen that movie know that there's something a little bit odd with Rob's story. And those of you who haven't, here's the case. Heath Ledger played the Joker in that movie, did a phenomenal job. Uh, one of the best character roles that we've seen in any movie, regardless of whether it's a comic book movie or an action movie or whatever, just one of the best character roles we've ever seen. Uh, so much so that he actually went crazy himself and committed suicide. Unfortunately for Mr. Palenka, Heath Ledger committed suicide six months before the release of The Dark Knight. Now, at first instinct, you might say, okay, but it's Kobe Bryant. He's really famous. He's really rich. He probably saw, like, an an early release or something, right? But most early releases at the earliest are three months before it premieres for the public, which would still mean that that was three months after Heath Ledger committed suicide. So, again, I will will read what he said. Obviously, you guys saw that movie, and he's like, hey, hook me up with a dinner with Heath Ledger because he got so locked into that role. I want to know how he mentally went there. So he had dinner with Heath, and he talked about how he locks in for a role. Obvious lie. Unlike our last story, I'm struggling, and I've been thinking about this for about a week, struggling to figure out why Rob Palenka felt the need to lie about this. He wasn't asked about Kobe Bryant and locking in the roles. He wasn't asked about if he's done anything cool with actors. He was simply telling a story, trying to prove how awesome of an agent and GM he is. And he chose to make one up where it's very obvious to anyone who's seen that movie that Heath Ledger killed himself due to the role. There's actually a famous story of... Jack Nicholson, who played the Joker earlier in, I believe it was the 80s, in the original Batman movies where there were four of them. And he told Heath to be very careful playing that role because when you're a character actor like they are, you can get very, very engulfed in the role and it can be very dangerous for your mental health. And he said that he went crazy and also had to seek counseling after he did the role. So this was a well-known fact that Heath Ledger got really into this role, kind of went crazy, killed himself, and it was very shortly after they finished shooting his scenes, so much so that there was still another six months before the movie was released because they had to do all the editing and such. So the Lakers have had a ton of things go wrong in the last week, and most of them were because somebody wasn't doing their job or people weren't really getting along normal work stuff this is a completely self-inflicted wound for no particular reason and it just kind of seems like Rob Palenka is one of those people and I'm sure a lot of us know these people who doesn't really feel like they fit in 
and they feel the need to embellish on these stories to try to outdo the people around them and seem more important and more accomplished. Which is interesting because this is a guy who got a bachelor's from one of the most prestigious business schools in the country at Michigan and a law degree from another very good program, the Michigan Law Program, who also worked with Kobe Bryant, one of the best athletes ever, and is the GM of the Lakers, one of the most valuable sports franchises in the world. Yet, he felt the need to lie. Personally, I feel like this says a lot about his ability to lead an organization. And if you want to dive into the Magic versus Palenka stuff, this kind of story makes me lean towards Team Magic, where he said that he didn't really get along with Palenka, and there are a lot of reasons why. If you haven't read it, I suggest that you read it and watch the interviews with Magic. It's really fascinating. Uh, But I just thought it was really interesting that he felt the need to lie, A, and B, that his lie being debunked took zero research because it's common knowledge among most people who saw that movie that Heath Ledger died well before the movie was ever released. Completely switching gears, let's talk about the Women's World Cup. So I'm one of those people where I absolutely love world competition. I love the Olympics. When the World Basketball Championships are on TV, I'm watching them. I'm one of the few people who actually watch the World Baseball Classic. I'm watching the Men's World Cup, the Women's World Cup, Summer, Winter Olympics, doesn't matter. If world competition is happening, I'm consuming it. And once every four years, we get a Women's World Cup, which for Americans is a lot more interesting than the Men's World Cup because we actually compete in this one. Uh, For a little bit of context, the Women's World Cup has only been happening since 1991, So it's significantly younger, as the tournament goes, than the Men's World Cup. And the field is actually smaller um, because women's soccer, and as is the case with most women's sports, is not as big a deal when it comes to funding in a lot of countries. So the worldwide competition, while it has been growing exponentially in the past few years, is still not quite at the level of the men's. So they have a smaller field, which some people say makes for better competition. So what we're going to do is very briefly go over the groups, who is expected to win out of those groups, and then a few tidbits to look for. Because what generally happens is a lot of Americans kind of check in and check out of what's happening and have no context. And so this is going to give you a little bit of help. And I'll give you a few things to watch for, which could be very interesting as well. So the groups are A through F. So we've got six groups, and you've got four teams in each group. And the way it works is, I'm not sure how they select the groups. That's a whole other thing that you can read into if you're really that interested. Um, But the groups are selected, and they do round robin within the group. So you play three games within your group. And then the top two teams advance into what's called the knockout rounds. And so the way the scoring works is you get points for a win. You get nothing if you lose, obviously. And then you get points for a tie. And then groups with the most points at the end make it through obviously if like there's a tie you have tiebreakers and all kinds of other complicated things get into that if you want to but basically you play three teams if you're two of the best teams out of those four you move on and then from that point it's single elimination so our first group has france norway south korea and nigeria france is the host country this year and they're also coming off of a men's world cup win for their men last year in russia Uh, So it would be really interesting to see if they can do what their men were able to do 
and win the World Cup, although this time being in France. So the favorites in Group A are France and Norway. So keep an eye on France uh, because they are one of the favorites for the entire tournament. Group B, we have Germany, Spain, China, and South Africa, with your favorites being Germany and Spain. A lot of these uh, favorites are going to kind of mirror the Men's World Cup. For anybody who watched it last year, generally countries that are good on one side are good on the other side, with America being the biggest exception of that, where our men didn't even make the tournament last year, and this year we are either favored outright or co-favored with France by pretty much every sporting book you can find. Group C, you have Italy, Brazil, Australia, and Jamaica. Uh, we have Australia and Brazil as the favorites in that group. And one of the best players in the world is on Australia. Her name is Sam Kerr. So if you're watching that, look for number 20 in the green and yellow uh, as one to look out for. Um, she could end up having making a name for herself, much like uh, Mbappe did last year for France. Group D, we have England, Scotland, Argentina, and Japan, with your favorites being England and Japan, although Japan is significantly younger than they have been in the past. Uh, they're still considered a favorite because of their past success, but look for them to maybe get knocked out in the group stages because they decided to go young. Group E, we have the Netherlands, Canada, New Zealand, and Cameroon, with Canada and the Netherlands being the favorites. And then finally, Group F, what we've all been waiting for, Sweden, the U.S., Chile, and Thailand, with the U.S. and Sweden being favorites if you're interested in watching that first u.s game it's going to be on june 11th at 3 eastern time all the games can be found on fox so it's either going to be fox fs1 fs2 and then any of their fox sports streaming services you can do on your phone or your computer as well if you're one of those people who's going to be at work at 3 eastern time like most of us will so like i said france and the u.s are favorites and for the u.s since that's what i'm rooting for we'll do a little background um for the first seven world cups the U.S. has had arguably the best goalie in the world, uh, starting with Brianna Scurry, who was the goalie when we won in 1999. And then that went right into Hope Solo, who arguably is one of the greatest female goalies, and some people argue greatest goalie period of all time up until this past World Cup in 2015. The U.S. has won three of those seven, just for the record. So we're working to replace them, and our current starting goalie, is Alyssa Nair, who those of you who watch U.S. Women's Soccer, the National Women's Soccer League, also known as the NWSL, she actually plays for the local Chicago team, as does Sam Kerr, who was mentioned earlier. And she's been pretty solid, but people are pretty afraid of what she has to do in goal, especially because the U.S. has gone to more of an attacking style, um, where previously we used to have the best defenders and consistently give up no goals in games, whereas this year we gave up more two-goal games than we had in any previous year since women have been playing soccer for the U.S. Um, and there's also this chance that if we win our group, we being the U.S., and France when theirs, wins their group, which is expected, that we would have to play them in the first round of the knockout rounds, making the two favorites have to play against each other. So obviously we lose that, we're out, and France has a pretty easy walk to the championship. At least that's what most people are saying. And it works the same for the U.S. If we get past France then people are saying that it's not going to be that difficult for us to move on and hopefully repeat. Uh, obviously, 
it's a single elimination tournament and in a game like soccer where it's very low scoring crazy things can happen but if you're looking to tune into the world cup even as a light fan those are a few things to get you started obviously if you want to dig deep there's a lot more storylines that you can get into the u.s has a few players that are under the age of 23 that are going to secure us for the future you have carly lloyd who's 37 coming off the bench playing on what's more than likely her last world cup but she's been a mainstay for a very long time was super huge in 2015 and is now coming off the bench so a lot of storylines for the u.s you have obviously australia coming up was one of the best players in the world france hosting it and actually being a favorite so tons of storylines if you're really starting to catch world cup fever just so you know that first game is on june 7th which is friday and uh, france is actually playing in it so if you're interested in the world cup you should check it out and even if you're not you should watch it anyway i know that a lot of people don't like to watch soccer on tv but just like last year a lot of non-soccer fans can get into it for the equivalent of like six weeks it's really worth it it's a lot of fun it gets pretty crazy especially in the knockout rounds it's really awesome to see all the people travel from all over the world especially when you're in a centralized location like france so tune into the world cup have some america spirit and watch the world compete. Uh, after the break, we'll get into some non-sports things. All right, we're back. And the first thing we're going to talk about in the second half of the podcast is the Scripps National Spelling Bee. Now, I'm somebody who can be a bit of a nerd at times. And one of the things I enjoy, actually, is watching the Scripps National Spelling Bee. It's something that has been showed on ESPN for quite some time now. And so it's really cool just to tune in. Obviously, I'm not sitting here watching the entire thing, uh, but it's really nice to tune in. And it just so happened that the most recent one, which happened uh, last week, uh, was played after the NBA Finals. So a lot of people flipped over to Sports Center, or flipped over to ESPN rather, to watch Sports Center, and the Scripps National Spelling Bee was going on. So a little background before we get into what actually is the main story of what's happening. So in 2014 and in 2015, uh, we had a two-way tie in each of those spelling bees. Traditionally, the spelling bee is won by one person, and recently we've had a string of ties that have made people question how the tournament is designed. So again, in 2014 and 2015, we had ties. In 2016, they increased the number of words in the final round and made them more difficult. This was obviously to try to do away with the ties and have one outright, outright winner. In 2017 and 2018, this actually worked, and we went back to having single champions. So the last two years, we've had single champions. Everybody's been happy. They haven't done anything to really change the tournament. Uh, it's been really, really awesome. Now, this year... All of that changed. We had 20 rounds for 10 hours. These kids, and we'll eventually get into how many people won, were spelling words for 10 hours. What ended up happening is we had eight, yes, eight co-champions this year. The interesting part is these eight co-champions didn't miss a word for 10 hours that's a lot of spelling 10 hours 20 rounds 10 hours so here is how the story goes there's a rule that states that no more than 25 consecutive rounds with three or fewer spellers can happen so basically you can't have more than 25 rounds if you have less than three spellers 
But if you have more, you can keep going if you so choose. That's kind of up to the people who are running the spelling bee. And we're going to get into what they had to say about this. So Dr. Jaquez Bailey is the guy who announces the word. And then when the kids ask things like, what's the language of origin? Can I use it in a sentence? Or can you use it in a sentence? What's the definition? He's the one that answers that if you actually watch it this year there were a lot there was a lot of back and forth uh with the kids and them saying hi to dr bailey and then like him asking questions like how they're doing it actually got to be pretty entertaining so dr bailey is kind of in charge of this whole thing in round 17 he made a statement and he said we're in uncharted territory we definitely won't run out of words but we may run out of words to challenge our most storied spellers and be history so Dr. Bailey's basically, as the host of the tournament, giving up. Before that, he also said, we're throwing the dictionary at you. And so far, you're showing the dictionary who's boss. And that statement is interesting because when people have talked to the kids, they've often said that they don't really feel like they're in competition with each other, but instead that they're in competition with the words and the dictionary. And so the kids aren't upset about an eight-way tie because they didn't look didn't, they didn't look at it as they were competing with each other anyway. They more looked at it as an accomplishment of this person put this task in front of me. Can I continually complete these tasks? I was going to get into reading some of the very challenging words, but it was really really difficult to even pronounce those words. So I would challenge you to go look this story up briefly and look at some of the words that these kids were spelling correctly with absolutely no problem. So Dr. Bailey actually announced that at the end of round 20, everyone who was left would be declared a co-champion. When he made that announcement, he was kind of assuming that all eight of these spellers would be left, and it turned out they did. Now, the prize for the Scripps National Spelling Bee is supposed to be a $50,000 scholarship. What Scripps ended up doing is all of the kids got $50,000, but I don't believe it was a scholarship. It was in some other form because that would have been $400,000. And that's a lot of money to just give out in scholarships. So the kids did end up getting their prize. But the larger story here is we are now back into this debate of the younger generations and participation trophies and ties and not knowing the score and not having winners and losers and what that means for their work ethic and them in the workforce and all of those things. So I think this is a unique situation because it's not the same as... There's 10 teams in a league, one team wins all their games, one team wins none of their games, and at the end of the season, everybody is called equal. This is completely different. You have eight kids who are given a task to master, in this case, spelling, and they all mastered it. You had somebody with a doctorate degree who's been hosting this tournament for years. I don't think that I've ever seen anybody besides Dr. Jacques Bailey announcing the words. Say to say to the world, we're in unprecedented, we're in uncharted territory. This has never happened. We have never had this many spellers who are this good. And a lot of this has to do with the technology that is out and, frankly, how long the spelling bee has been going on. Yes, we get new words every year, but the rate that we get new words is not that high. So kids can look at past spelling bees and kind of know what kind of words to study for the early rounds. And then you get into the more challenging words in the late rounds and the way that they study them when they're knowing if it's a German root, it's spelled this way. If it's a Latin root, it's spelled this way and things of that nature. And lang with language not actually changing, it stands to reason that people would actually get better at it. So people who want to argue 
oh, there should always be one winner and blah, 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 blah. I normally agree with you. In this case, eight kids proved that, A, they were smarter than the work that they were given, and, B, that the difference between their intelligence was so negligible that we didn't even have the time and space to actually find a winner. Dr. Bailey was convinced that no amount of words and no level of word was going to have any of those eight spellers spell it wrong. So he saved us some time. Mind you, he let this go on for 10 hours. Saved us some time and just said, look, you all were competing against the dictionary. You won. No need to drag this out any longer. Congratulations, all eight of you. Do we think this is going to continue to happen in the future? I don't think so. I think we may see a couple two-way ties, three-way ties, maybe even a four-way tie. But having eight kids master something as difficult as spelling words, especially words where the root is not from your native language, I don't think that's going to happen again. So for now, we have eight spelling bee champions, and surprising myself, I'm happy about it. Switching gears completely... Uh, earlier, I talked about Angela Davis and said that we are going to talk about blacks in the law. And Netflix has recently released a dramatization of the Central Park Five called When They See Us. So we're going to talk about a few things. The first thing I'm going to do is there may be people who are unfamiliar with this story. So I'm going to give a brief rundown of what happened. I don't want to hear people complaining about spoilers because it's a dramatization of history. So you can literally look up on the internet what happened. So if you're worried about spoilers because you didn't know, A, keep yourself informed because you should know that this happened. B, just turn off the podcast for now, watch it, and then come back. So when they see us, like I said, is about kids called uh, who are known as the Central Park Five. Central Park being the park in New York, Central Park. And what happened is there was an assault and rape of Trisha Maley, a white female jogger. Uh, four black and one Hispanic juveniles were arrested for that and multiple similar incidents in Central Park that had been happening over the previous few weeks. Uh, some eyewitnesses named the boys, um, and then they were take they were actually taken into custody that night. Um, they remained detained due to coerced and false confessions. So when you read articles about this, it'll be it's interesting how they word these things because a lot of the older articles say this kid did this, this kid did this, this kid did this, and it's because these kids actually confessed to the crime. However, what we ended up finding out is that they were lied to by police, they were coerced, they were threatened, and all of their confessions actually wouldn't have held up in a court if people had paid attention to what actually happened. So the articles are written as if the boys were actually convicted, which they were, but they weren't actually guilty. And so it'd be kind of nice if people went back and rewrote articles, because some of the articles are newer and kind of about, um, they're bringing the story back because of the Netflix dramatization, and they're still writing as if the boys are guilty, even though we now know that they're not. So... To get into a few facts of the ca- a few more facts of the case uh, before I give my opinion on it, uh, they so they remained detained for the false confessions after the rape kit DNA test came back without a match for any of the five boys. They were still convicted, each sentenced to somewhere between five and fifteen years. So you had a rape kit come back, none of the kids were connected by DNA, and they were still convicted. Mind you, this isn't like in the nineteen. 19- 50s where we have Jim Crow and all of those things. This was in 1989. So very recent. 
four of the boys appealed, and all of those appeals were upheld. And so the boys actually ended up serving somewhere between 16 and 13 years, depending on which boy it was. In 2002, Matthias Reyes admitted to the rape and assault of Trisha Maley, and the DNA test came back, and he was also able to give facts about the murder, or sorry, not the murder, about the assault, rather, that no one else would have known if they had not been there and done it. So DNA test comes back positive, and he knows things about the case. They knows him. He was already in jail for multiple murders and assaults and things, and he was past his statute of limitation, so he didn't receive any further punishment, but he was going to be in jail for life anyway. It was at that time, in 2002, that the convictions for the five boys were vacated. Now, they had maintained their innocence after they had been put in jail. That's why they appealed. They came out and told everybody what happened with the police and how they were coerced and how it was unfair the way they were treated and obviously still put in jail. So once they got out, which they didn't serve any less time because um, Matthias didn't admit to it until after the boys were out of prison anyway. Uh, so he admitted it. They dropped the conventions were vacated in 2002 and five, the five boys actually sued the city of New York for malicious, malicious prosecution, racial discrimination, and emotional distress. Here's one of the crazy parts of the story. Obviously, dude comes out and says, I did it, not them. They had been telling these stories of what happened to them and why they admitted to it. So they sue, and most people were like, yeah, they're going to sue, the city's going to settle because they know they were in the wrong, blah, 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 it's fine. Except that's not what happened. Mayor Bloomberg, mayor of New York at the time, refused to settle because he was convinced that his lawyers would win the case. Now, let's let's look at the facts again. These boys were wrongly, they were falsely accused, falsely convicted, falsely had their convictions upheld after appeal with no evidence pointing them to the crime, and a guy came out and said that he was the one that did it, and they were able to prove that he actually was. And Mayor Bloomberg had the audacity to think, well, first of all, he had the audacity to think that New York would win, but also, even if he thought they would win, he didn't have any compassion for these five minority now men who lost the last part of their childhood and the beginning of young adulthood for no reason. He had no compassion and was actually trying to keep them from getting any sort of reparation for wrong treatment just has a lot to say about the kind of people that we're dealing with. And also, this was not that long ago. We are talking in the early 2000s. Now, in 2014, New York has a new mayor, Bill de Blasio, and he supported the settlement, and the gentleman settled for $41 million in total in December of 2014. Twelve years, mind you, after they had been released and for some of them longer than 12 years after they had been released, 12 years after the actual person who committed the assault admitted to it, and 20, almost 30 years, actually, almost 30 years after they were falsely accused and thrown in jail as young children. Teenagers, really. So I have a lot to say about this story, and that's not what we're going to get into today. What I want to get into is 
these kinds of stories have been dramatized, re-dramatized rather, and documented in the form of documentaries pretty frequently in our recent entertainment history. And I am all for shedding light on these stories. So we have this one, you have the many biopics that have come out, especially about uh, black athletes, and we had hidden figures and movies like that that have been amazing and shed light on fantastic stories that people have known and also shed light on some really sad stories. We had things like 12 Years a Slave as well. So we're now able to talk about these things differently because everybody is able to experience them and people can no longer deny that they're happening. I am all for it. However, do not guilt or shame me for refusing to watch it. I'm not saying I will never watch it, but I'm saying right now, maybe that's not what I need. I saw Detroit. For those of you who don't know, Detroit is a movie kind of similar to the story of the Central Park Five. Some kids got falsely accused of something. They were held hostage by police in a hotel. Really phenomenal movie. The way that it was done, really sad story. That movie, after I saw it, made me incredibly angry. And I'm going to be honest, it made me incredibly angry at white people, and more specifically, white police officers. Obviously, I didn't go out and do anything that I wasn't supposed to do, but the feelings were still there. And being a person of color, especially a male of color in the society, there are many stereotypes and tropes that I have to deal with on a daily basis. And I have learned to cope with those in my own ways and be able to be a functioning member of the society and be able to treat people with the respect they deserve and so on and so forth. However, I still know the facts of who I am and what that means for me in this society. And I'm constantly reminded that of that from day to day. And you see it in the news, you see it in sports with some of the characteristics that are used, and that's a whole nother conversation. Uh, characteristics that are used when, just, when they describe African Americans playing positions that are traditionally played by whites and so on and so forth. And so these are things that, like, Black people are dealing with every day. Hispanics are dealing with their own tropes. Asians are dealing with their own tropes, tropes every day. We all deal with this. Not all of us are either A, equipped to, or B, really want to deal with being angry again. And I have yet to talk to or see, talk to anyone or see a reaction of someone who watched this, who A, they were obviously sad, and for most of them, they was crying, but more importantly for this conversation, B, they're all incredibly angry. And personally, I don't need to add any anger to my life. My level of anger currently with the situation that is in this country, and while I'm very pleased that I live here and I would not trade it for the world, nothing in this country is perfect, as it can't be. And so there are things that we deal with on a daily basis, and we all deal with them in our own ways, and that's great. And so I figured out how I deal with mine and, like I said, continue to be a functioning member of society, which means that sometimes I just don't want the negativity. I know the story of what happened. So if you don't know the story, watch it. Educate yourself, please. If, especially if you're a white person who does not know this story, please absolutely watch it. It's fascinating, number one. From what I've been told, it's incredibly well done, number two. And number three, these are the parts of history that get ignored because, as I learned very young from one of my history teachers, the winners write the history books. 
So absolutely educate yourself if you did not know about this story previously. But for those of you who did and maybe just don't want to watch it right now, don't feel bad. And if you're one of those people who watched it and somebody close to you doesn't want to and they're an African-American who's like, hey, I know the story. I'm not really feeling it right now. Don't guilt or shame them. It is absolutely their right to protect their positive attitude and not expose themselves to yet another example of how, in our very recent history, blacks are treated as less than. Will I get around to eventually watching it? More than likely, I will watch it. But for the time being, I'm in a headspace where I'm very pleased with where I am, and I don't really want to do anything to shake that up. And I already know this story, and watching it play out can only have one result, and that's to anger me. Which, should it anger me? Yes, because people who look like me, who are not that much younger than I am, were wronged, and it was unnecessary and unfair and not even really settled properly afterwards. However, for me, and probably for some of you, now is not the time, and that's okay. The last thing we're going to do is last week I did a survey um, and this week I'm going to do something a little different. I think this is what we're going to start doing from now on. It's going to be a segment called One More Thing. I'm going to get some production for it. I'll have like a somebody say one more thing or another one or however I'm going to do it. I'm not sure yet. But for today, we're just going to talk about it and go into it. And it's going to be a little bit of something maybe that I saw or that I watched or that I heard that's like kind of bothering me that I have an opinion on. And maybe I want some people to hear it. Maybe I just need to vent. Who knows? Uh, for this one, I want to settle a debate. And people can argue with me. Um, common places to say, don't at me. But if you disagree, absolutely at me. And we can have this discussion. So popular things on the internet, memes, which are hilarious, and GIFs. Notice I said GIF, not GIF. What we're talking about is this, this old GIF versus GIF debate. People say GIF. People say GIF. People argue. The guy who invented them said they're called GIFs, so they're called GIFs. Whatever. There is a right answer to this. And just because you're the inventor does not mean that it's not like a name of a child. You can't say this is how it's pronounced. The correct answer is GIF. Not GIF. GIF. And I have one very simple argument. If you can dispute this argument, I will listen to you. But I'm sure you will have a very, very difficult time. During the holidays and birthdays, traditionally we give presents to kids, loved ones, whatever. The other word for these things that we give is gifts. G-I-F-T-S. The singular of that word being gift. Someone please explain to me how G-I-F-T is gift, but I'm supposed to believe that G-I-F is gif. Dropping one letter at the very end of the word is supposed to change the entire pronunciation of the word, especially when it's not like the E at the end of made, which makes made mad because English is weird and you put an E at the end and it changes the vowel from a soft vowel to a hard vowel, like all of those things with like vowels at the end. But this is a consonant at the end of a word, which means it should not change the pronunciation. So if gift is gift, then gif is gif, not jif. At me. 
that's all I've got today. Thank you guys so much for listening. I appreciate all of the support. I had some really cool comments last week. If you haven't commented, please comment. Uh, I was able to get a hold of the uploading. So if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please subscribe, rate, and review. I'm fairly certain that you can only rate and review once. And if you do it, it will override your other one. Um, but still, if you haven't done that, subscribe, rate, review. If you're listening on Spotify, I believe all you can do is follow and maybe like, so do that. And if you're listening on SoundCloud, please make sure you like it and then leave a comment, which you should be able to do on every episode, which is really cool. Um, so again, thanks. You can follow me and at me if you're mad about the GIF versus GIF thing at dubr1617 on Twitter and dubr16 on Instagram. Thanks again for listening. Later days.